Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian Kaola, and as Trevor said, I'm an elder in training here at Joy Community Fellowship of Williamstown. And Lord willing, next month I'll be able to serve side by side with the other elders, Tre Trevor and Jeremy and Ben, in that office. It's my privilege and honor this morning to bring to you God's word. But before we do, let's go to our Heavenly Father in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that Jesus Christ would be honored. We pray that you would give light to your word this morning, and that we may be fed. We confess that it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. Help us to understand your grace more fully. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. On December 19th of 2008, Lisa Torti was in a car accident with her friend Alexandra. After seeing smoke and fire coming from the other car, she pulled her friend to safety through the car and over to the sidewalk while they awaited the paramedics. After the incident was over, she found herself on the wrong end of a legal battle as her friend decided to sue her for damage that may or may not have occurred while she was being pulled to safety. No good deed goes unpunished. Are we familiar with that phrase this morning, no good deed goes unpunished? It's a worldly phrase that dates back to the 12th century. Another slightly less dramatic example of this is letting someone in front of you when you're checking out at the store and they proceed to buy the warranty on their new clock and then pay by check. No good deed goes unpunished. In the passage from 1 Peter that we are going to be looking into today, we will see phrases like enduring sorrows while suffering unjustly and do good, suffer for it, and endure. These may sound the same as no good deed goes unpunished, but they are markedly different. As we've been learning over the past few months, Peter is writing to mostly Gentile Christians in what is now the country of Turkey. He is reminding them of who they are now as born-again believers in Jesus Christ, and Peter is teaching them what life in this new kingdom means. He tells them in his letter they are to set their hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. They are not to be conformed to this world. They are to be holy in all their conduct. They are to love one another and put away all malice and envy and slander. He calls them a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that they may proclaim the excellencies of him who called them. In this section now, Peter begins to explain that part of this Christian walk involves doing good, suffering, and enduring. Let's turn now to 1 Peter chapter 2 and read our verses for this morning. Verses 18 to 25. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, endure? 
But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your faith, of your souls, sorry. In this section of this letter, Peter is calling Christians to live honorably among the Gentiles. The first example of that is what Ben preached on last week as far as being subject to the governments and government bodies around them, submitting themselves to the government. Peter now gives another example of living honorably among the Gentiles, and he says, for servants to be subject to their masters. Much can be said about the occupation of servant in the ancient Greco-Roman world. The owning of slaves at this time was a common reality. The relationship between slave and master was much more equivalent to employee and employer as it was to the use of chattel slavery during the 18th and 19th century here and in other places. When Peter says here that the servants are to be subject to their masters, he's talking about honoring and obeying them. It's the same word that he uses in the next chapter when talking about husbands and wives, for wives to be subject to their husbands, to honor and to obey them. And not just, um, sorry, to honor and obey their masters, and not just the nice ones, but also to the ones that are unjust, not fair. And this means that they are going to face suffering. He even explains later in this passage that this, this suffering for doing good is a good thing and part of our calling. And please take note that Peter is not talking about suffering for suffering's sake or for the Christians to go about looking for different ways to suffer. He's talking about enduring suffering, suffering that comes to them naturally while living in a broken world and while being followers of Jesus Christ. To endure here does not mean to grin and bear it, to just plod through waiting for it to be over. It means to persevere in the midst of suffering knowing that it's accomplishing something. It's doing something. Suffering always changes us. It never leaves us the same. It either softens us or hardens us. How does the world react to suffering? First of all, the world will do just about anything to avoid suffering, but when suffering comes, how do they react? Anger, retaliation, depression, complaining, hatred. But how are we, brothers and sisters, how ought we to react to suffering? Peter calls us to endure, but why? Why would he call on Christians to obey why would he be calling Christian servants to obey unjust masters? 
Why would he call on Christians to endure suffering while doing good? Peter gives us three answers to this in the passage that we just read. The first answer to the question that Peter gives is that it is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. A gracious thing. What does the word gracious here mean? Well, in this context, it can have one or two meanings, but probably both. The first meaning is that it's God's grace at work in their lives as they endure suffering. God's grace. The second has to do with reward. We see in verse 20 that Peter asks the rhetorical question of, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, endure? The answer is none. No credit. No reward. But when doing good and mindful of God, you endure these things, he says, it's a gracious thing in the eyes of God. There is credit. There is reward. In this passage, both definitions could be used together to say that enduring suffering for doing good shows that God's grace is at work in you and will be rewarded, both in this life and in the one to come. I know we can be quick to, to put off our reward in, in the life to come, whatever that may look like. But let's not neglect, brothers and sisters, to see the reward and blessing it is now as we are conformed more and more into the image of our Savior through suffering. You, Christian, are growing in patience while you endure suffering. You are growing in compassion for others through suffering. You are growing in your reliance on God through suffering. Again, suffering always changes us. These servants that we just read about, by following Peter's instructions, are going to show to themselves and to others that they are trusting in their heavenly Father who sees all and are acknowledging God's sovereignty, goodness, and kindness, knowing that their God knows where they are living and where they work. It is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And when is it gracious? When mindful of God, Peter tells us. When considering the things that we've been talking about regarding who we are now in Christ, when considering God's goodness and sovereignty and faithfulness. So what does this look like today in our country in 2023? One example would be a young person in college or in high school seeing her classmates get better grades because of cheating while she struggles to get a passing grade. She is doing the right thing, but suffering for it. She's called to endure, for this is a gracious thing in the eyes of God. Why? What's going on? God is doing a work in this young person. She is learning that her identity is not in her grades or in her class rank, but her identity is being a follower of Jesus Christ and a child of God. My second example, I was talking to one of my customers last week, a brother in Christ, and he was sharing that he is with his wife in month 18 of trying to get her legal citizenship into this country, all the while watching friends and relatives come over illegally without consequences. 
This man and his wife are doing the right thing, suffering for it, but called to endure. God is doing a gracious work in their hearts. They are being taught, amongst many other things, that their identity and their hope isn't living together in the United States or in their citizenship here, but that their hope is in the kingdom that is to come. An example I just thought of as, as Trevor was praying um, is the Burtons that most of us know and love. Jeff and Shana went overseas for the purpose of adoption and are facing, as we know, all kinds of suffering. They're doing good, suffering for it, called to endure. God is doing a gracious work in their hearts. And further along, we'll know all about it. Further along, we'll understand why. My last example is very familiar to many of us this morning. It's when we speak the truth to someone in love, and we find what we say thrown back at us, twisted, changed, and we also find ourselves maybe even being slandered amongst others. Saying the right thing, speaking the truth, but suffering for it. But this is God's grace at work in your life. Reminding you that God's well done, good and faithful servant over you is more important than any man's praise. This passage talks about being beaten for doing good, which some of the people that Peter was writing to will actually have to endure, actual beatings. There is little chance that we will be beaten by our employers, but as you know, there are some words that can wound just as bad as any whip can. We can think that something is wrong when suffering comes our way. Lord, what is happening? Lord, what's going on? I know a lot of you are suffering now for doing good, and God is calling you to endure. I don't know all that God is accomplishing through the suffering, but I can assure you he is doing a good work in you, and there is reward. Enduring suffering while doing good is a graceful thing in the eyes of God. Second answer to the question, and the question is, why does God call us to endure suffering? The second answer Peter gives us is, because Christ is our example. Peter doesn't command us here to do anything that our Lord hasn't done and done perfectly. He is our perfect example, an example we are to follow. Verse 21 says, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you in his example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter goes on to give us the details of how Jesus endured the suffering. He did not threaten nor retaliate. He could have, right? In Matthew's gospel, right before they arrested Jesus, one of his disciples grabs a sword and wax off one of the, the guard's ears. But what does Jesus say to him? Put your sword back in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? The truth is, is that Jesus could have called on his father but he did not. He could have defended himself before he went before a Pilate and Herod, but he did not. 
what did he do? Verse 23 says that he continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. He chose, Jesus volunteered to lay down his life. Yes, it was the Father's will, his Father's will that he speaks about in the garden. But he says in John's gospel that he lays down his life. Let's turn now to to John chapter 10 to read about Jesus' words. John chapter 10, we'll start in verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is what Jesus did. He laid down his life. But how is that an example to us? How does that enable us to follow in his steps, as Peter says? Three things on that. Remember who he suffered for. Verse 21, back in 1 Peter, says, For to this you have been called, because Christ suffered for you. For you. Okay, Let's take a step back and just remember what we're reading here. This is a letter. This is a letter that Peter sat down and wrote to the churches in the dispersion, knowing who he was writing to. He knew them by name. One day this letter got across the the sea and land, somehow got to these people, and somebody said, I have a letter from Peter. Speculating here a little bit, but generally somebody got the letter, and they took it to the church, and they read it. And it was personal. And when he gets to the part saying that, remember that Christ also suffered for you, he knew the yous he was writing to. He knew them by name. So he was saying, you, Mark, you, Phoebe, you, Aristarchus, Christ also suffered for you. It was personal. And it should be personal to us 2,000 years later. Brothers and sisters, regarding enduring suffering, remember, For to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you. Remembering what our Lord did for us, sinners that we were and still are, can help us to endure the suffering we are to face, even unjust suffering. Second point, seeing him, the Lord of glory, being reviled and not reviling in return can help us not to lash out when we are being reviled. Let's remember that Hebrews 4, it says that Jesus was tempted in every way, yet without sin. Jesus was tempted to revile back, just as we would have been. Jesus was reviled in all of his earthly ministry, but especially in the last days leading up to his death. 
mocked and cursed, spit on and beaten. He was tempted to retaliate, but did not. The perfect one, the one who was truly innocent, the one who did not deserve any reviling, any cursing, any beating, he opened not his mouth. My third point on how Jesus' example enables us to follow in his steps. Verse 23 says that during all this, the suffering, the reviling, and the threatening, Jesus continued entrusting himself to the Father who judges justly. Jesus knew that in the end he will be vindicated because God judges justly. We can resist defending ourselves knowing that the Father judges all things justly and rightly and fairly. Romans 12 says, Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord, I will repay. We endure looking forward with hope, knowing that none of it is in vain and all wrongs will be righted. Remember, our actions can either put on display or undermine the gospel. Paul gives this very reason in his first letter to Timothy, chapter 6, verse 1, when talking about this very subject. He tells them, let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Our actions, or should I say our reactions, put on display what we believe about ourselves, God, and the gospel. Before we move on, Let's take a moment and think about what we are trying to understand about enduring suffering. I know there are a lot of things right now vying for our attention in this room, in our minds, but let's think, what question are we trying to answer? We're trying to answer the question of why. Why are we Christians called to endure suffering while doing good? Our third answer that Peter gives us is because we have Jesus as the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Jesus wasn't merely going to die on the cross to be an example of enduring suffering for us. There would be not much good news in that. Do you know that's how the, the world thinks of Jesus on the cross, some people anyway? They think that Jesus on the cross is just an example just a way that he showed his disciples how much he loved them by dying for them. But that doesn't make much sense. It would be like a fireman telling people on the sidewalk that he loves them while he rushes into a burning building to die for them. There would be no purpose, and it would accomplish nothing. These verses that we are looking at here in uh, 22 to 25, actually, let's read them again. Let's go back to 1 Peter 2. Twenty-two to twenty-five. He, being Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This language that uh, Peter is using is all phrases and words that the prophet Isaiah used to describe this suffering servant who was to come. 700 years before Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, Isaiah prophesied about this sin bearer. We can read about it in Isaiah 53. Actually, we read about it earlier today in our assurance of pardon. So let's look at those verses again. They're in the bulletin on the first page. Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. So what does Peter and Isaiah say is happening on that cross? Verse 24 tells us plainly, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. This is talking about substitutionary atonement, which is just a fancier way of saying that he suffered and died in our place. Substitutionary. Because of our sin, because of our rebellion against God, because of our straying that Peter describes in the next verse, it is us who deserve to be on the cross. But Jesus stands in our place. This is the heart of the good news, the true gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 25 of 1 Peter goes on to say that we were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Brothers and sisters, if you're sitting here this morning trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, for reconciliation with the Father. Praise the Lord. But understand at one time you were wandering like sheep and the good shepherd came and found you. It doesn't matter if you were five or 50 and you did not wander back to the shepherd. You were pursued. You were sought after. And when he found you, his spirit gave you new life new heart, new desires, and peace with God. There are some here this morning that are still wandering further and further from God. To some, it's an act of rebellion, shaking your fist at God, living life your own way. And to others, it's more of a shrug towards the things of God and His Word and salvation. Either way, to you, I say to turn around, to turn back to God. The biblical word is repent. So many verses come to mind. The first is from Mark chapter 1. Before Jesus began his earthly ministry, 
He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The second is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, 9 to 13. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Look what Peter is saying about the gospel that the Father sent the Son into the world to deal with the problem of sin. There are others out there saying that Jesus came for other reasons. Do not believe the lies of the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is preached by many false teachers, most of which you could see on TV, and they say that Jesus came so that we could have our best life now, so that we could have health and wealth and peace with the world. It is a lie, and Peter here would agree. Christians suffer the same griefs, same pain, same ailments, same sorrows as the world does, even more so for the sake of the faith. We also must be careful not to promote this in our evangelism. It can be so easy to do. Most of the time when we get to share our faith with our unbelieving friends or relatives, it's usually at a time of distress in their life, whether it's sickness or tragedy or grief. We want to bring them Jesus so that they can be saved and so that they can have peace with God. But sometimes we could say it in a way where it would help them in their ailments now. We want them to trust in Jesus so that their soul is saved and that they would have peace with the one true God. But we must be careful not to portray Jesus. We must be careful to portray Jesus not as a remedy for their present ailments, but as a remedy for their eternal souls. A friend of mine that uh, many of you knew uh, came to faith late in his life. It was his early 50s. His wife was not a believer, so immediately there was uh, a... um, trouble in the home, in their marriage. His relationship with his two sons, which was poor to begin with, began to deteriorate. He lost one of these two sons tragically to a drug overdose. His health, this person's health, began to fail, starting with his kidneys, and he died at the age of 56. Was there something wrong with his faith? No. The prosperity gospel would disagree and say that only if he had more faith he could overcome these things. That is wrong. There was nothing wrong with his faith, and there was nothing wrong with the object of his faith. Jesus Christ called him home, and he will raise up his new body on the last day. Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of your soul. What does this mean for you as you face suffering. It means that he is not just the shepherd who went after you and sought you out. He is also the overseer of your soul and of your life. 
so that you can be sure that any tragedy or sorrow or suffering that comes your way is by his graceful hand, and you could be sure that there's a purpose and it is accomplishing something. Knowing this, being sure, absolutely sure of this, helps us to endure while suffering. So what happens when we endeavor to endure suffering well, but fail? What do we do when our reactions to suffering look just like the world? When we respond to suffering with anger or retaliation or depression or complaining, what do we do? We look back to the man who went to the cross, fully knowing who we were before he saved us and fully knowing who we are now. We remove our eyes from ourselves and back to Christ who fulfilled all of the law's legal demands for us. While he was on this earth, he was perfectly patient, perfectly gentle, perfectly kind, exercised perfect self-control. He endured suffering perfectly. Just as he was our substitute in bearing the punishment that we deserve, he is also our substitute in living the perfect life that we have not and cannot live. He takes our sin from us and in exchange grants us his righteousness that he earned with his life so that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. We can endure suffering by remembering that it is a gracious thing in the eyes of God, knowing that we have Christ as our perfect example and having the hope that he is not only our good shepherd, but overseer of our soul. This morning, let us rest in Christ's finished work, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. Jesus did it perfectly for us. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for this time this morning in your word. We pray that we would remember these things throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the year. As suffering comes, we pray that you would help us to endure, looking to your Son and remembering the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.